Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. At a time where it feels like the neoliberal order is fraying and there seem to be no new alternatives, the recent victory of Lula in Brazil over the neo-fascist Bolsonaro was a rare moment of inspiration for those struggling against imperialism in the third world. Are imperialist powers less able to impose themselves on the global South using past tools of invasion, coups, and assassinations? The defeat of the coup in Bolivia and victory of Petro in Colombia show that the methods of the past aren't working, while interventions in the Middle East have caused destruction, but not necessarily regime change. Undesirable governments are undermined and sanctioned and sabotaged, causing the deaths of hundreds of thousands and the displacement of millions. During the Cold War, hundreds of thousands were killed by American-backed regimes, and popular movements or leaders seeking an independent path were crushed. On November 15, world leaders gathered in Indonesia for the G20 in their annual attempt to keep capitalism afloat. Left unsaid was the fact that it was there in 1965 that the so-called Jakarta Method was established, named after the country's capital. The tools the U.S. developed there were used repeatedly in the decades that followed. Now they no longer seem to work. Here to discuss past and present tools used by the United States against popular movements and revolutionary struggles seeking self-determination is Vincent Bevins, author of The Jakarta Method and a journalist who has worked in Asia and Latin America. But before we jump into it, be sure to hit the subscribe button and the bell so you get a notification whenever we post new content. And if you appreciate this show, you can help it grow by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. Vincent, welcome. Thank you so much. I am so happy to finally have you on the show. I'm really excited to have this conversation. And, you know, I think because of what's happening in the world right now with the World Cup, and I want to ask you about Brazil, maybe before we get too deep into it, a good place to start would be Brazil and the World Cup. You know, right. a lot of Brazilian players are Bolsonaro supporters, right? And of right. course, like the most famous one, one of the most world famous players being Neymar, who actually, I didn't know this. I knew he was a Bolsonaro supporter, but I had just learned the other day during one of the Brazil games that he actually said back in October that he would dedicate his first goal to Bolsonaro in the World yeah. Cup. Um, yeah. I don't think he's going to get a chance to because he seems to be injured now and right. I don't think he scored a goal the last game. But yeah. that said, you also have this other guy, uh, Richelson. I don't know if I'm saying his yeah. name right, but he actually supports yeah, yeah. Lula. He's one of the only players who openly does. I'm just, I'm just curious. You know, what are your thoughts on how the politics of Brazil have played out in the World Cup? As you know, Brazil is one of the best, most beloved teams around the world, and also vice versa. Yeah, maybe I'm a bit too emotionally involved in in the World Cup now that it started, but I would say that actually. The goal scored against Serbia, the second goal scored by Hisharlison, it's a very Brazilian name, um, was like politically and historically significant for the country of Brazil. Like, not only is Neymar a real hate figure of the uh, anti-Bolsonarista pro-democracy forces in Brazil, Neymar, I mean, Neymar has been somebody that quite annoys a lot of Brazilians for many years now, but really coming out and supporting Bolsonaro made him a real... Uh, object of, of um, <laughs> yeah, hate for, for for democracy forces in Brazil. I was on Avenida Paulista in downtown Sao Paulo right after Lula won um, a couple weeks ago. And like one of the many chants that like the streets like spontaneously erupted into were, eh, Neymar vai ter que declarar, which is, hey, Neymar, you're going to have to pay your t- because <laughs> the... Ac- <laughs> The accusation from Lula was that Bolsonaro had made some kind of a deal with Neymar to um, be lenient on his tax bill if he would support uh, Bolsonaro. Um, I don't know if we know that that's true, but like it mattered to Brazil that they played well in the first game. And it mattered that this like first goal, well, both goals were he's Charlison, but this like the goal that was like the best of the World Cup so far and was really sort of the embodiment of everything that Brazilian soccer is supposed to be came from a man that had donated a lot of his, a lot of money to pro, uh, to um, COVID vaccine uh, research. Mm-hmm. He's somebody that like can kind of unite the country in the way that the yellow Brazil jersey used to um, before around eight years ago uh, with the 7-1 loss to Germany. The, the yellow jersey became to signify sort of top-down class warfare and, and a far-right movement. So to remind Brazil that the, the soccer team can stand for unity behind like a working class hero. Again, I would, yeah, 
maybe I'm too too involved, but I think it actually was quite a, like a historic moment for Brazilian politics. Yeah, and Neymar, Neymar is such a crybaby. I, I felt that way even four years ago before I had any idea what this guy's politics were. Um, and I know right. he like and the thing. It's funny. Brazil is like. You know, I'm in Lebanon right now and the World Cup is so popular here like it is in much of the the world, especially the global south. And Brazil is one of the most loved teams like it's Brazil, Argentina. Maybe that's the case around the world. Brazil, Argentina and Germany because they're historically such good teams, but especially Brazil. Mm -hmm. And it actually frustrated me uh, this time around just because of the fact that there's so many of the players being like these Bolsonaro supporters. But then it was also interesting that, you know, back when after Lula won, you had the Bolsonaro supporters trying to obstruct his victory, doing the blockades. Was there was there a role of football fans in actually preventing that? Yeah. I mean, this is probably mythologized uh, to some extent because it was such a great story, but it also did happen. Um, I was again in Sao Paulo in the, in the couple of days after Lula won. And around the country, Bolsonaro supporters, some of whom uh, owned trucks, um, but others who just had cars blocked the highways around the country. Um, and this was significant not only because it would shut down um, uh, you know, all, all transportation in Brazil, but the highway police force had been notoriously pro-Bolsonaro. So they were one of the, the, the parts of the state which was most likely to support a coup if anybody were to support one. And so I couldn't go to Rio for a few days. Um, there was It didn't seem like a coup was possible. It seemed like all of the actual elites that matter in Brazil had long ago decided... Uh, to unite behind a sort of democratic transition, given um, the circumstances going into the election. But still, you couldn't get, you know, the, the airport was shut down, was surrounded, you couldn't get across the country. And the group of people that literally opened up my path to Rio, because I was taking an overnight bus from Sao Paulo, was the organized fan base of Corinthians, which is a... It's Lula's favorite team. It's the biggest team in Sao Paulo. And it's a team that had a quite important role in the end of the dictatorship. So, like, this is a left-leaning group of basically football hooligans, right? But, like, the good the good football hooligans that literally went out and cleared <laughs> the roads. And it was like, yeah, it became, again, sort of a, a, a significant moment in social media in Brazil because everybody was able to sort of celebrate these, like, working-class soccer fans going out there. And then the Bolsonarista um, supporters who were calling for a military coup, like immediately running away because they were scared of sort of um, actual tough guys. Nice. I love to hear left-wing tough guys exist in this context. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I just to like broaden it out a bit, I mean, when we talk about the victory of Lula, this is of course coming after a few other victories across the region, some surprise victories, for example, like Pe like Gustavo Petro in Colombia. And I'm curious if you see the victories of like Lula and Petro as a sign that the U.S. is less able to obstruct these sort of popular leftist movements the way it has been in the past. Because so far, you know, the U.S. has not done anything as far as we know to try to get in the way, especially with Gustavo Petro, which is happening in a country that like until now has been historically in the hands of very pro U S very right wing, uh, people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, the, the big question hanging over the, the continent, South America for among people like me, is, is this another, is this a second pink tide? So the narrative goes that at the end of the cold war and the beginning of the 21st century, there was, um, a number of left-wing leaders elected across South America, some of whom stayed friendly with Washington, some of whom uh, did not, especially Hugo Chavez after the U.S.-backed coup attempt in 2002. This became a permanent site of contention between Washington and Venezuela, and this remains the case. Um, and then a lot of these... Uh, uh, a lot of the, those countries fell to the right, again, or to center-right forces in the intervening years, partially for um, because sort of democracy was sort of back and you had the, the natural left-right um, sort of pendulum swing that you would see uh, in, in a region that was not beset by the kind of very, very active and rampant intervention that you saw in the Cold War. But then also mm -hmm. um, in a place like Brazil, you had the removal of Dilma Rousseff in 2016 in a mm -hmm. parliamentary impeachment, or, or sorry, an impeachment vote in Congress that was very clearly uh, motivated by um, political um, 
considerations, not the kind of crimes that she was accused of. Uh, the people that voted to remove her uh, were guilty of much more corruption than she was ever accused of. And then you had Lula put in jail in 2018 um, in the in the year that he was running against Bolsonaro in at the moment that he was leading uh, the polls in Brazil. Um, so in the case of Brazil, the largest country in the hemisphere, you have quite an interesting dynamic emerging now where for many years, the, the Lula and the PT, the Workers' Party in Brazil, had accused Washington of being partially responsible for the far right turn in Brazil, saying that the Lava Jato investigation had um, collaborated closely with the Justice Department, that they wanted to crush the left in Latin America. Um, and all of that, you know, there's a lot to that story and there's a lot that still I think needs to be investigated um, uh, in the future. But then also... In the last six to eight to 10 months, it appeared that the Biden administration had made it very, very clear that they would not back uh, a Bolsonarista bid for power, that um, th that they were making it very clear publicly and privately and then intentionally leaking to the press that they were putting pressure on Bolsonaro to accept the um, the results of the election. So you'll have a very interesting moment where now the two most leaders, the mo two most powerful uh, leaders in the Western Hemisphere, Joe Biden and Lula, have this kind of checkered history where Lula has has claimed and has believed that the reason he was in jail was partially because of U.S. intervention. Lula's brother famously arrested and tortured back during the dictatorship um, when it was backed very fervently by the United States. But also this kind of conditional, temporary, tactical, anti-Bolsonarista alliance between some parts of the uh, the U.S. Uh, state and uh, democratic forces in Brazil. Um, and then that will he will try to hold that together, I believe, Lula, um, using the Amazon and international uh, internationally coordinated efforts on climate change um, to to use the goodwill that exists outside of the country. But it's yeah, it's a very interesting back and forth between rampant intervention and murderous, really, repression backed by the United States during the Cold War, a kind of flowering of center left and left wing governments that somehow fell to their own uh, at their due to their own mistakes and somehow experienced active intervention from abroad. And now a new crop of leaders that are coming uh, into power, I believe, in a much more difficult international situation because 2022 is a much more difficult year for the global economy than 2003 was the first time that Lula took over. Somehow with the tactical support or the at least the 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 declaration from the united states that they would not intervene and or or countenance any um, intervention in brazilian democracy yeah it really is a big question in, in terms of like whether we're going to see that pendulum shift back to the right and because like you said it's 2022 there's not as much money the global economy is like in this horrible kind of post-pandemic now post-war ukraine uh recession um, so it's going to be very difficult to deliver on promises uh, if you're a left wing leader. And then, of course, there's always the potential for American sabotage in these kinds of situations, especially if we end up with like another Trump presidency. Um, or, of course, that could happen during a Democratic presidency, as it did under Obama uh, last time around. There were so many uh, U.S. backed uh, sabotage efforts during Obama. Um but why like why do you think like you mentioned the fact that the US basically made it clear and it wasn't just the US in, in stuff you've written about this you also mentioned other embassies like basically western embassies made it very clear across Brazil to Bolsonaro that they were not going to back him contesting the election right that they were going to support a Lula win if Lula won and Lula did win but like why mm -hmm. is that the case why did western governments seem to support Lula this time around after abandoning him and actually really playing a huge role, especially the U.S., in his in his jailing. Um, why why did they, like, switch this time around? What is it about Bolsonaro that they, I guess, are against? Because they, you know, mm -hmm. they weren't so against him when he won uh, the first time. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think there's a, the, the, the answer is multifaceted. But yeah, not only did the, the embassies of the international community... Uh, plan to recognize um, a Lula win, they had like pre-written their tweets so they could hit tweet like at yeah. the moment the results came in. So Lula on the night of the election just spent all night just retweeting support from everyone around the world. And I, and I, you know, I said on that social network that night, he's not like doing a victory dance. He's like saying like, look, the world 
is recognizing that I won. Like, you can't contest this. Like, after Germany and the United States and, and, and Spain and Uruguay, and after they all come out in support of this democratic result, you can't contest that. Um, why did things change from 2018 to 2022? Uh, I think there's three answers, if I can remember them all. Um, the, the first and, like, I think domestically oriented answer is that to take, like, the oversimplified, vulgar Marxist interpretation of what Bolsonaro's role was, he did a poor job of managing the interests of the national bourgeoisie. Like, he didn't do a very good job taking care of Brazilian elites. It became clear at some point that he was not good at running the economy. And there's no, you can't really establish a dictatorship in South America, which he would have loved to do. You can't establish a far-right government in South America without taking care of the interests of national economic elites. That's the whole point, right? So he, he proved to, to the people that matter in Brazil and their business partners around the world that, yes, he was able to deliver sort of some hard neoliberal reform. Yes, he said all the right things about sort of helping the markets, right, which means like the local financial uh, class. But he was just not very good at taking care of their, uh, their interests. And so it became clear by the beginning of 2022 that that group of people um, Faria Lima, like that's the Brazil's version of Wall Street, would not back a coup to keep him in against Lula. It was not worth it to keep this particular bad steward of the Brazilian economy in power against a Lula that they had sort of dealt with before. They knew that he would be, you know, there would be some problems, but they could they could sort of do this old dance and try to influence him, um, which is what you're seeing play out now. Part two, and I think this is in sort of the ideological yeah. space, yeah, especially in the U.S., is that the Bolsonaro family declared themselves very, very, very loyal to the Trump movement. Like, they they came out in a way that even by the standards of the South American far right was strangely obsequious to the Trump family. So in ways which could be helpful to Brazil, but also damaging the long term, you already sort of mentioned what happens if a Republican comes back into power. In the U.S., Political, in U.S. political discourse, the Bolsonaro movement became very closely aligned, allied uh, with Trumpism. So you got kind of, if 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 Bolsonarismo is seen as a Trumpist movement in South America, it makes domestic political sense for Biden to be opposed to it. it, it it's an easy win for Biden to stand up loudly and say, "Screw this guy down in South America. He, you know, he's destroying the Amazon. He's a far right." Um, uh, 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 leader and uh, he's dangerous. It, it made sense for pol domestic political reasons. And then number three, there's the question of the environment. You know, the, the, the global community, North Atlantic countries, they do want some kind of action um, taken on the Amazon. And Bolsonaro made it cl very clear that not only was he going to do the opposite, um, encourage his supporters to cut, cut down and burn as much as possible, that he was going to sort of like raise both middle fingers to any international forum that might try to coordinate with him on that. So the countries of Europe were very eager to have anybody that would at least pretend <laughs> that would at least that would that would like somehow participate in this international movement. So I think those three th those three things come together. Um, but they also can all be sort of fragile. If you look at, you know, the, the road that Lula faces ahead, Lula is in a situation where the domestic opposition is incredibly strong. Um, the financial elites mm -hmm. in Brazil are already putting huge amounts of pressure on Lula to do what they think that he should, which means, you know, to take care of their interests first. Um, they have a lot of ways to contest his real power if they were to choose to do so. Um, and, uh, and then, yeah, again, what the big question is, what happens if Republic comes back in two years? Cause then, then now, you know, Bolsonaro has in, in, in the months in which it seemed clear even to him that he was probably you know, that he had to come up with a plan B. He brought Tucker Carlson into, into Brazil. Yeah. He really made, he made, he really made a direct appeal to the sort of Fox news um, portion of the United States. And I think this makes sense as a long-term strategy, which is, you know, if I'm out of power, I want to have an alliance with the second party or the, one of the two major parties in the strongest country in the world. So, um, yeah, so the, the 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 reasons for that switch also underline the, the the degree to which things can be difficult for Lula going forward. Yeah, I get like a fellowship at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, yeah, I, know, <laughs> I don't think I think it's totally public office. 
I, well, I'm, I've said a long time Sorry, ago, I think that it's totally possible that the Bolsonaros end up like living in Florida and like living off of the sort of right wing industrial complex. Like, I don't think that's a, that's, that's out of the question. It is. I mean, it is. A, it's very, I was, I, that, well, I was going to ask you. Well, I was I was actually going to ask you. It is a very lucrative complex you just described, but I was going to ask yeah. him what do you think will come of his what will happen to his sons now? <laughs> so his sons are in so his sons so are, in, are, in, son. are in are in his sons are in Congress. So I, I think it's at some point it became clear to Jair Bolsonaro president uh, that he wanted to stay in power but also really wanted to stay out of jail. I mean, it's quite clear that this family has committed a range of crimes. Um, before yeah. uh, entering the presidency. So the sons have the benefit of a, spe- a special le- legal status as members of, of Congress. Jair Bolsonaro does not. But um, because of the very strong result for Bolsonarista candidates and the strong block that Bolsonarismo will have in Congress um, and in state governments, I think it looks a, things look a little bit more secure for him in the short term. Um, he has enough people sort of batting for him, uh, at least ostensibly at this moment, that it doesn't seem like you would have to like flee or um, face the possibility of immediate prosecution. And then a lot of this happens behind the scenes too. I mean, I, I speak to the, you know, Lula campaign fairly often. This is something they don't usually want to talk about, but the question is, you know, does it make more sense to go after Bolsonaro or does it make more sense to just let him fade away? You know, which, which, which is, is it more mm-hmm. tactically, uh, advantageous to prosecute Jair Bolsonaro or just to like let let it go away. And of course, it's not technically him up to him. But, you know, right, 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 right. Well, because yeah, you know, there's right. there's this, and these are the people that you know stopped my uh, not, not that I matter, but you know shut down the the roads in Brazil. Yeah. They're are willing to take violent action, perhaps to defend who they the person they believe to be their leader. So yeah, it could be dangerous to 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 inflict mm-hmm. this sort of passions. Well, you know, I, I do want to ask you as well, because, you know, you've reported from so many different parts of the world, obviously not just Latin America. So I would love to get your take on this in this world that we're in right now, where neoliberalism really dominates. Right. And most countries have essentially surrendered or had integrated into this American led capitalism. Why do you think it is that Latin America seems to be? one of the only places where the left can achieve popular mobilization and win elections. Like you don't really see that happening anywhere else. Well, it's a good question. I think Latin America is unique for a couple reasons with relationship to the, to the rest of the global South. Latin America is a, a part of the world, which is firmly, which emerges very, very deeply from the Western post-Enlightenment ideological tradition. So everything, everything that happens in Latin America is legible to people from North America or Western Europe because mm-hmm. they have the same left-right spectrum. This is not the case in Southeast Asia and in, in much of Africa, right? So they have the same sort of ideological categories, the same set of um, um, terms to describe everything that happens. So it's very easy for us to look down there and say, oh, that's the left candidate. Uh, that's the right candidate. The left candidate stands for things that are very similar to what the, the Western European or North American left used to stand for before they were sort of eviscerated. Um, that, I think that's one part of the answer. Another part of the answer is that there's this historical debt, this historical mem- this memory of historical repression during the Cold War, this idea, which is very common, uh, not only amongst the left, but that in the 20th century, there were certain things that this region wanted to do. There were certain ways that this region wanted to advance into a um, advanced democratic uh, order and were stopped from doing so by violent U.S. intervention. The idea that the left was the good guys in the Cold War is quite um, widespread. Bolsonaro and people like that are trying to contest that, saying, oh, this has all been a myth. But it's not just the radical left that looks back and says... We were trying, we were on a path to normal sort of, I mean, even, you know, in in many cases, the path that was disrupted by violent uh, uh, intervention coming from the North was just the path to like sort of liberal capitalism. Even that was, was, Mm -hmm. was, was um, stopped and intercepted with violent intervention. And so the idea that this is something we've been wanting to do, we've been trying to establish European like um, relations between the classes for a century, but Uncle Sam has been getting in the way violently leads to this sort of repressed desire that when 
the obstacles removed or at least changed or is weakened or global conditions are transformed, I think it's, it's normal to see the people that stand for that legacy win elections. And again, like so many of the leaders that come even in the first and the second wave of the pink tide um, are either linked to that repressed um, left, left movement in the, in the 20th century or like literally were in it, like literally were guerrillas, literally were, were tortured by a U.S. backed dictatorship. Right. Um, yeah. And I think that makes a lot of sense if you if you study Latin American history. That's a good point. And now I'm about to give an amazing segue. <laughs> Do you think another reason for this, um, this, this, the, the, basically the premise of the question I asked you where like you have this, these left mobilizations in Latin America, unlike in other parts of the world, do you think another reason for that might also be because the U.S. succeeded in permanently defeating some of those movements in other places? And would you say, Vincent, that that's due in many ways to the Jakarta method? And how would you define that since you wrote a book about it? <laughs> that's my segue. <laughs> yeah, so the Jakarta method, yeah, that's great, fantastic. Yeah, so the Jakarta method is the title of a book I, I published a few years ago, which is about the intentional mass murder of left-wing movements around the world. Um, the, not the, the, it was not the first episode in this story, but the most important chapter uh, in, this, in this story is the mass murder of the Indonesian Communist Party in 1965 and 1966, which was the largest um, communist party outside of China and the Soviet Union, probably the largest democratic socialist movement in history. And I found that in, in at least 22 countries around the world, um, the intentional mass murder of leftists, people accused of being leftists, um, or perceived enemies of nascent U.S.-backed authoritarian capitalist regimes, uh, was put in place. And, and I believe this is really important part of the construction of the particular type of hegemony that the U.S. Endes, ends up achieving in the 20th century and the construction of the particular type of globalization that we got as we entered the 21st century. So the contrast between a place like Indonesia and in Latin America is really striking because in, Latin, in Indonesia you had the the U.S.-backed military overseeing the murder of approximately one million people, perhaps more, perhaps less. We don't know because there's never been the, t the kind of truth and reconciliation commission that we did have in places like Chile, Argentina, Brazil, uh, to some uh, lesser extent, uh, Central America. Um, not only did you not have this kind of investigation of the each victim and each perpetrator and, 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 and some kind of rep, uh, reparations or, or restitution or national apology, you still have the dominant narrative in Indonesia being that they deserve to be killed essentially. Um, and the people, I mean, the people that I get, that I met um, researching the book um, not only suffered horribly in the sixties and seventies and eighties and nineties, they're still, marginalized and stigmatized for being part of a movement, even though it was a movement that would have won an election if it were allowed to take place, if 25% uh, of the country uh, was somehow affiliated with the party, they're still stigmatized as being somehow satanic or, 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 or evil or, or um, opposed to the very nature of what Indonesia is. So the question of why you get this page turned in Latin America, but not in Indonesia is an interesting one. And, and I don't think we know the answer entirely. Um, the Indonesian military remains very powerful. Um, when Jokowi, the current president of Indonesia, who's very, is often compared to Obama, and I think this comparison makes sense, not, but he also looks a lot like Obama, like they have this exact same face structure. And Obama spent a lot of, Obama spent part of his childhood in Jakarta because of the mass murder. Uh, his stepfather was called back to Indonesia um, uh, because of this um, right. rupture in Brazilian, or sorry, in Indonesian society. Uh, so Jokowi, when he won uh, election, he was the first uh, sort of person outside of the military or, or traditional oligarchical elites when an election uh, since the fall of the dictatorship. A lot of people thought that he would oversee some kind of a truth and reconciliation commission, some kind of reparations. Um, the community of survivors that I got to know quite well thought that perhaps this would happen. Uh, he did not. He immediately uh, backed away from any of this and, and the best speculation seems to be that he's afraid of the power of the Indonesian military. They're, they're able to pull this sort of anti-communist card on him now, just as they did against the left in 1965. And Bolsonaro is somebody who, you know, 
effectively pulled the same card. You know, this is this, this, his his script was is also one which is pulled from the depths of the Cold War in Brazil in the 1970s uh, and in Chile in the 1970s. The word Jakarta came to signify the intentional mass murder of leftists and accused leftists. Um, a new book just came out uh, in Brazil um, by a really good uh, Brazilian journalist. And he told me at the launch that he found that Lula's brother was arrested and tortured as part of Operation Jakarta in Brazil. It was actually, you know, it didn't, it didn't get fully implemented in Brazil. Um, but these are all, these are all linked to traumatic moments in the cold war in which, as I said, the United States intervened in order to stop a particular type of post-colonial nation from emerging and to shape outcomes in a way, which ultimately ultimately led to a particular type of U S led hegemony. Um, so yes, certainly in the case of Indonesia and Southeast Asia, the question is to the question, I mean, you know, and then now we have the Philippines, you know, the second largest country in the region by population, which has elected the son of the U S backed dictator, um, uh, uh, from the cold war, you know, for Namank Barcos, good friend of the Reagan family. Um, I wasn't there, um, but some good reporting, um, that came out of, uh, the Philippines, led to the conclusion that essentially the Marcos family had so much money from the dictatorship. They had stolen so much money in the 20th century that they were sort of able to buy off TikTok influencers and like the entire Philippine uh, social media infrastructure. Like, I mean, there's some great reporting on this. If you, if you look this up that, you know, you could make a small amount of money, not a small amount to us, perhaps uh, those of us from the United States or Western Europe, but significant money for a Filipino to support Bong Bong Marcos on TikTok, and this is money that, of course, came from these 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 generative moments in the in the Cold War, where the U.S. really shaped the outcome of of uh, uh, state formation yeah, of the global south. I like it's like it's. I mean, you could really call it like genocide of a political movement if that word applies to a political movement. Um, I'm not sure if it does, but in the case of Indonesia, some people, yeah, some people use politicide, yeah. Yeah. Some people um, like to use politicide. Some people like to use to call Indonesia a, a genocide. Yeah. Well, what was, what was the, I, I don't know if the audio dropped off and you already said it, but what was the ultimate like estimate of how many people were killed? Um, in, 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 across Indonesia that were a part of the, yeah. In, in, in Indonesia. In Indonesia, the, the, yeah, in Indonesia, the estimate that I use is approximately 1 million people. Um, one general claimed that they had killed 3 million people, but he seemed to be, have been perhaps like bragging. Uh, another estimate is 500,000 to 1 million. That's But again, the real, the really, the really horrible reality behind that guessing game that we're forced to play is that nobody ever showed up and did an investigation. There was never any, a, there was never a UN sort of investigation into what happened. There was never a giant, you know, global um, campaign to figure out exactly who had been killed because it wouldn't be that hard, right? And I believe that part of the reason we do not have that in a, in a place like Indonesia is because it was good for the rising power. It was good for the United States, which was taking its role. It was, that was in ascendance as the most powerful nation in history and to, to a large extent shapes our narratives of the Cold War to this day. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, but, you know, I'm curious because you worked for a lot of mainstream publications. Um, hardly like not like you. Did, it's not like you were like, uh, you know, at, I know you've written for Jacobin now, but it's not like that was like your main thing before. Like you were quite and you still write for a lot of mainstream publications, which is great. So I guess my question for you is how did you learn about the Jakarta method and what made it motivated you to write that particular book? Yeah, no, I've actually only ever in my entire career written for mainstream corporate media. I was interviewed by Jacobin a couple of times, but I like my most recent, uh, stuff. Oh, like, I'm sorry. I thought you'd actually, I thought maybe they public. I thought I assumed it was uh, like, your it's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's the same thing, but no, but yeah, no, but to this day, like I've, I've yeah. my entire career has been basically mainstream, uh, um, journalism. I went to Indonesia to work for the Washington Post to cover Southeast Asia for the Washington Post. My most recent stuff for on Brazil has been either for New York Magazine or the New York Review of Books. Um, I went to Southeast Asia not like looking for evidence of U.S. 
crimes. I went there just to cover the region uh, as a correspondent for the Washington Post. You know, Jeff Bezos bought the paper. So after my time in in Brazil, they had some money to expand their coverage. Uh, <laughs> that's basically the, the story. Um, but when I got there and I, and I chose to be based in Jakarta, it's the most populous. Uh, Indonesia is the most populous country in the region. It's the fourth largest country in the world by population. Um, and when I got there, it just became clear that there was nothing you could do without uncovering the legacy of this massacre in 1965. You couldn't tell the story of Indonesia in, uh, it was 2017 at the time, without understanding what had happened in 1965. No matter where you looked, it was lurking below the surface. It was, it was, it had generated so much of contemporary history uh, or sort of, sort of contemporary, the contemporary political and social situation, but had been intentionally repressed and mis misrepresented that you couldn't uh, do the job that I was supposed to do responsibly without looking at that, uh, um, at that episode. And so I got, as I got deeper and deeper, I realized there could be a book there. And then I eventually put aside entirely, uh, the work of sort of, uh, day-to-day news correspondence and just worked on that for years to try to create a book that would tell the story in a way that was intelligible to like, you know, that was written for a regular people, but that also was quite, um, loyal to the the facts on the ground uh, and based on sort of uh, granular reporting and interviews with, with the survivors. So do you think, do you think that in some ways, like, cause you know, the last 30 years or last 20 years or so, I should say, like you haven't had any, there, there's nothing comparable to not just what happened in Jakarta in, in the sixties, but even the sort of like copycats of that in other places in the world, there's nothing really comparable to it in more recent times. I mean, yes, like the US has backed atrocities. You could use the Iraq war as one, the war in Afghanistan. I mean, lots of people were killed, but that was like the sort of typical warfare we're used to. And of course there's like small versions of the US backing right-wing forces here or there that commit atrocities, but not to the same scale. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I'm trying to ask you is, do you think it's no longer effective in the modern era to have a Jakarta method style like, just mass murdering campaign of like an entire movement um, because of maybe media coverage or the popular democratic outrage you might have over abuses like that. Does that make these methods no longer possible? Yeah. I mean, it's a really good question. I mean, on the one, the first thing I would say is that a lot of people have died in Yemen in the last few years and there hasn't seemed to be a huge amount of media or democratic outrage uh, in the United States. Um, which is maybe a good way to get into the longer answer because it's a it's a it's a complex question. I think the answer is complex. Um, one of the things that I tried to get across in in this book, the Jakarta Method, one thing that I came across when I was looking at the history of U.S. power in the second half of the 20th century is it seems that the United States was really kind of going through a learning process as to how to be the superpower in a world which is no longer uh, connected through formal formal empire. Right. So at the end of World War II, the United States emerges as the most powerful country in human history. And I think kind of falls into a world historical space that was created by centuries of European formal colonialism, formal empire. So the United States in the second half of the 20th century wants to shape outcomes in the third world or as it was called the third world now, the global south, but did not have the the tools of a formal empire of of of, of direct colonial control that the Europeans had in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. So over the second half of the 20th century, what you see is a kind of a learning process through which the United States, uh, the CIA is a protagonist early in the, in the Cold War, but it's not the only actor, learns which things work. And, and the way I often visualize this is that the United States begins to accumulate a set of tricks and, and, and tools and approaches and scripts, uh, a, a kind of a toolbox of things that have worked in some place and could work in somewhere else. And you see across the Cold War, oh, well, this worked here. It can be replicated there. This didn't work there. Let's tinker it. And over the, the second half of the 20th century, this toolbox gets bigger and bigger. There's more things that can be deployed around the world. Often you get U.S. officials that move from one region to the other. You could see, oh, this person took that particular tool with them. Um, and the Jakarta method, as I call it, the intentional mass murder of unarmed leftists or people accused of being leftists, um, is perhaps the most horrible of the tools in this box. And, yeah. and, um, and, and it's the one that I concentrate on, but it's, there's many, many others. And, uh, you know, in the cold war, the military coup is very common and diplomatic economic pressure is very common. And 
so to get back to your actual question, I often try to say two things at the same time. And the first is that if something is in that box and it has been proved to work in the past, they don't throw it away. We should never believe that something that has happened in the past is too horrible to be used in the future. Um, I think this is a fundamental historical mistake. That's not how history works. People in Chile, for example, in the early 70s, very tragically thought that that could not happen to them. They thought, oh, a military coup with the generals overthrowing democracy. Oh, that's from the 50s. That doesn't happen anymore. That's like Guatemala. This is Chile. This is the 70s. So we should never believe that something cannot happen again or that makes it more likely to happen again. And I think that something like the intentional mass murder of political something like the intentional mass murder mass murder of a political movement absolutely I think could be deployed if it were perceived by the right people to be the best tool for the 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 a, a particularly a particular outcome that is desired by those those uh, policymakers at a, at a certain time. So at the same time that I say that, I also think that with the end of the Cold War, with the establishment of full. Uh, 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 global capitalism, essentially, some 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 exceptions, but with the establishment of the United States as truly the superpower at the center of a global capitalist system, um, you get a wider set of tools in this box. And often, the, the 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 wider set of tools, the more effective tools, are the more subtle ones. So even in the Cold War, mm-hmm. they often didn't did not want to employ the intentional mass murder. Of civilians, the, in Indonesia, this was the third thing they tried. It was only after less direct, more subtle, less horrible. I mean, you know, even you know, even if you know, historically they may be monsters. I mean, individual level, the, these people weren't monsters. They would have preferred to crush the Indonesian left without well, bloodshed if they, they could have. Some, well, some of them were actual uh, really bloodthirsty. But even in the in the in the twentieth century, more subtle methods were usually. Preferred. I mean, a smart hegemon does not want to be seen to be intervening. A smart hegemon wants to shape outcomes without generating hatred on, uh, 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 um, on the ground. So with the 21st century, uh, you have more tools at, at the disposal of the hegemon. And often they're ones that, that establish some degree of separation between the United States and the victim. Um and of course, the go—the real go-to method for shaping outcomes around the world in the last few years has been sanctions, right? And sanctions—it's—it seems to be something that is politically very easy for the the political class of the United States to throw sanctions somewhere. It tends—no one tends to stick around and ask, at least not ask very forcefully, if it actually did anything other than punish the country in question. There's very, very few cases of the stated goals of the sanctions being achieved. There's lots of cases of just collective punishment. So that leads one to believe perhaps that is the stated goal or, you know, either they're either they don't know what they're doing or they're lying about what they're doing it. But again, when you can establish these, these degrees of separation between the actor and the victim, it makes it harder for there to be media uh, and democratic outcry because you can't, you can say, well, that's actually not the sanctions that are, you know, it's actually not, um, Saudi Arabia uh, and with U.S. support that's causing this this massacre or this uh, this this math this the, this mass death in Yemen. It is this war. Or I don't know. It just it, it becomes just those levels of separation become uh, make it easier uh, to to make it harder for to someone to to point the finger directly at the United States than if you have sort of the the very overt and obvious sort of swashbuckling of the early CIA years. And I think this is mm-hmm. part of this, this, this learning process. You, you have that in your toolbox, but if this will work, if a sanction will work, if economic pressure will work, if diplomatic pressure will work, that is, tends to be what, what is tried first. Um, so I think, yeah, that's a, it's a complicated right. and contradictory answer, but I think absolutely it could happen again. But when it doesn't, it's because there's other ways for the hegemon to shape outcomes, um, which uh, work in a way which is a, uh, a, uh, 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 create some distance between uh, the the actor and the victim. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, sanctions are a huge part of it. You also have like, you know, the funding of like civil society groups to try and push certain, certain ideas. And then, you know, in various parts of the Middle East, you have funding of certain militias here and there. I mean, um, and not, not always by the United States, sometimes by U.S. allies. Um, oh, that's funny. My electricity mm-hmm. just... 
Anyways, it's back on. <laughs> and speaking speaking of sanctions, yeah, good. Speaking well, yeah. of sanctions, um, you know, I wanted to. <laughs> yeah. I also wanted to ask you because I think this is a really important episode as well. You actually wrote in this piece for um, for the Atlantic. Uh, you talk about the book that you published on the Jakarta method and that you also covered similar episodes throughout the cold war. And you say there were a lot, so many that I missed the Sri Lanka case in all. I found 22 episodes during the cold war, including the Indonesia massacre in which this Jakarta method was used. Sri Lanka makes it 23. So I'm curious if you could elaborate a little bit, like what episodes Mm -hmm. during the cold war were similar to the murder of 1 million, perhaps leftists in Indonesia, um, or people being accused of being in the Indonesian Communist Party, and how does Sri Lanka fit into this? Yeah, and so across the across the world, there were so many cases that um, I yeah, as I said, I found twenty two, and then after the the book came out, the hardcover, some people from Sri Lanka got in touch and said, "Oh, you didn't know about this case? There was the intentional mass murder of this leftist group, the JPP, um, and they called it. I don't know if it was uh, operate it was." Maybe, again, mixed up because there's so many. In some parts of the world, there's Plan Jakarta. In some parts of the world, it's Operation Jakarta. Sometimes in the world, it's just Jakarta. Uh, oh, I think it was the Jakarta Solution, which is somehow the most ominous of all of them, that they that they used to um, name the strategy which was going to be employed and ultimately would be employed, which was the mass murder of this leftist group or anybody that was could be associated with them. And then you had horrible stories that you had in Indonesia sort of bodies um, strewn throughout the country because the idea was to terrorize, right? So, um, and again, I, I often find that it's really helpful to go in chronological order because there's really kind of a learning process, right? So <clears throat> after 1965 in Indonesia, which historians of Asia believe was the first time that there were disappearances used as a method of state terror, not just killing people, but arresting them and then not disclosing to their family and loved ones if they had been killed, which is a really paralyzing and and horrible form of psychological warfare against everybody that might want to believe that this person is still alive. And that, that stops you from taking action against the state. So in 65, 66 in Indonesia, you have the first instances of, of disappearances. You see disappearances up here in Guatemala and Venezuela one year later, and you have the transfer of us uh, personnel from Southeast Asia to Latin America. So it's very possible that they, they brought with them this new trick, this new, this new approach that worked. And in the early seventies, you saw Jakarta employed as a terror campaign on the streets of Santiago. This was the years in which Salvador Allende, the democratically elected socialist, um, was facing domestic opposition. And Richard Nixon had been trying since before he took office. This is important to, to recognize. They did not wait for him to make any mistakes. They wanted to destroy his presidency before it even started. Um, Brazil was actively collaborating to uh, prepare the ground for a coup. So on the streets of Santiago, you had the word Jakarta written on walls, or you had a postcard sent to the homes of leftists or accused leftists or um, employees of the government with saying that said just either Jakarta or Jakarta is coming. Uh, and of course, very tragically, in 1973, Jakarta did come in Chile um, with the US-backed coup uh, then creating the, the Pinochet dictatorship. So in Chile, you had about 3,000 people killed in that first moment. After that, you get the establishment of Operation Condor throughout all of South America, which is a international care terror campaign, which allowed the countries of South America, now almost all um, governed by U.S. allied authoritarian capitalist uh, dictatorships, to trade information so they could kill their perceived enemies outside of their own countries. So the, the the worst offender in terms of numbers in the Operation Condor period was Argentina, which killed tens of thousands of leftists or accused leftists or, or people perceived to be enemies of uh, the regime. Um, notably, Operation Condor also targeted people in Europe. Notably, they also targeted people that were not leftists at all, that were former members of the military establishment that might talk about what happened. This happened with the former head of the Chilean um, armed forces um, when he was killed in, 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 in Buenos Aires. And then in the 1980s, as Central America becomes the perceived problem spot for U.S. policymakers in the Cold War, you get Operation Condor officials uh, coming up to Central America to teach Central American um, military uh, uh, officials 
how to employ the same types of counterinsurgency terror methods that have been employed during Condor. Um, again, in this point, we have some evidence that they talk, spoke about Plan Yakarta, that uh, a Guatemala, Guatemalan death squad member was brought together with an Argentine death squad member um, by the U.S. ambassador to Spain uh, in uh, Madrid while still under Franco's rule to, to explain how uh, Jakarta could, could work. Um, and then it is in Central America in the 1980s that you have the numbers that come closest to the Indonesian case. You have hundreds of thousands uh, killed in Guatemala where this politicide, uh, as you described earlier, really spills over into actual genocide. They target ethnicities for being perceived to be sort of racially predisposed to communism, right? Like, oh, this tribe, they're collective, so they're all going to go communist. Um, entire villages wiped out, hundreds of thousands killed in, in Central America in the 80s. And this is now, by this time in the Cold War, you get the it comes full circle in terms of the the beginning of this method in the first place, because the first time that we know of in the Cold War, um, where the U.S. encouraged a local military junta or uh, military government to carry out the intentional mass murder of leftists, was in Guatemala in 1954, after the U.S.-backed coup against Jacobo Arbenz um, in the very early days of the CIA. This is when the CIA was... <laughs> To go back to that metaphor, figuring out that the military coup was a, a, a great uh, tool in its box after Iran in 53 and Guatemala in 1954, the CIA really gets a, um, a new lease on life in Washington. They're, they're, they're perceived to be people that can get things done with a relatively low cost for the United States. But Guatemala, of course, immediately becomes so worn. And, you know, 40 years later now, this wound is still open and, and causing mass death. Um, very close to the United States. It's freaking unbelievable when you when you like lay it all out like that, just one horror story after another. Vincent, I just wanna I wanna end here asking you. I know you're working on other stuff. I think you're working on an upcoming book. Do you want to say anything about that mm -hmm. um, or plug anything before we wrap? Yeah, I don't need to plug anything. But yeah, I I started working on a second book years ago, right when I finished the first book. Um, it is a history. It's a more recent history that focuses on mass protest movements around the world. Um, I visited quite a lot of countries to write it, but the main narrative will be Brazil, which is why I moved back to Sao Paulo in 2021, about a year ago. Um, but yeah, that'll come out next year. People can find me wherever, but, uh, yeah, there'll be a book coming out next year. And, uh, well, I want to thank there'll you be more on it when, when we're close to publication. But yeah, that's what I've been working on for eight years now. Oh, awesome. Well, when, it, when that comes out, we'll have to get you on again. But I want to thank you for giving me an hour of your time to break all this down. Um, and just for all your work, I mean, your book is fantastic. I think that so many people have learned a lot from it, especially because it has a very like wide appeal. Um, so thank you for coming on. Thank you for discussing all of this. And I hope to have you back on soon. Thanks for watching, everyone. If you want to see more progressive anti-imperialist content like this, make sure you hit the subscribe button so you can stay up to date with the latest breakthrough news content. And if you want to support our work and get access to exclusive content, head over to patreon.com slash breakthrough news.